you meet people who made it and you're like, so what did you do in those hard times? And they're like, well, you know, started from the bottom, you know, but we made it. And it's like, okay, no, I, I see you made it. What did you do in the process of making it when you weren't making it? And it's like, you, you're not really getting a real answer. And for me, I'm just like, yo, I'm not ashamed of my story. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. A very good afternoon to you and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. My name is Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine and it sponsors this show. So if you are enjoying interviews like this one and you want all the latest news, reviews, columnists and more, why not subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine? You'll get full online access with new articles going online every single day, plus the print magazine delivered to your door and... If you subscribe right now, we will even throw in a free copy of John Mark Comer's brand new book, Live No Lies. This is the Christian book everyone is talking about. It's number one in the charts right now. I'm reading it myself and I can highly recommend it. So get a year's subscription to Premier Christianity Magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine, plus a free book by John Mark Comer. Just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. All the details are online to get yourself the book and the magazine. premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. But here on the profile today, I'm really pleased to say we've got two fantastic interviews coming up for you. First of all, we have Cassandra Nelson talking to Yvonne Orgy. And in part two, we're hearing from Michael Ward, who is a C.S. Lewis scholar on his new book, After Humanity. So stick around for that one coming up. Two great conversations coming up for you right here on Premier Christian Radio. You've joined us for the profile, where we like to hear about a person's life, faith, testimony and more Yvonne Orgy and Michael Ward coming up for you this afternoon so without any further ado let me hand over to Cassandra Nelson who will introduce our first guest over to you Cass I am very excited about this interview I can't even put it into words man you are here with me Cassandra Maria and joining me is a Nigerian American stand-up comic and actress best known for playing the role of Molly on Issa Rae's hit TV series Insecure she is half of the hosting team of the amazing Jesus and Jollof podcast she's Emmy Award nominated NAACP Image Award nominated and now she's an author it is of course the amazing Yvonne Orgy, hello. Hi, Cassandra. How are you? I am good. It's really strange because you know I've been listening to your podcast, and um, it feels like I'm now speaking to the podcaster. Now you are talking back to me, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. It's great. Um, but we don't have a lot of time, so I just really want to get straight into the interview. We are here to talk about your book. Um, it's a book that I bought because I too am a comedian. I am a comedy writer and I was really looking for people in the industry that did what I do and were Christian. So when I came across your book, I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. It's called Bamboozled by Jesus, How God Tricked Me into the Life of My Dreams. Um, how did that come about? How did you writing a book start in the first place? Yeah, well, I was bamboozled into writing the book because this was not a thing that I needed to do because God knew I was busy. And he basically <laughs> was like, yeah, I gave you the same busy that you're now telling me you're too busy to do the thing that I told you to do, which is write this book. And I was like, you're right. Stop playing. Like, 
you know, he basically was just like, don't let the blessings that I have poured out onto you stop you from continuing to be obedient <laughs> to the things that I've called you to do. And so I was just like, all right, well, well, what you want me to tell your people? Because ah, and he was just like, tell, tell them, tell them what happened to you. Tell them, tell them your journey. And it was basically, it's like, you don't have to like search or reach. Cause I think for me, I was like, well, you know, have I done enough to, to warn a book right now at this stage? And I think the reason why I wrote it was I've actually ended one chapter of my life, you know, and I think so many people write a book at the end, you know, at the end when they've done everything. And it's just like, you know, they maybe highlight the, the big things. And I was like, yo, I'm highlighting the like not sexy things. Mm. I'm highlighting the things that were hard, you know, the inception story, the come up story. So it was just like, and I'm kind of in real time in it with you guys and also like just leaving it. So it's still fresh. So it's not like, well, here is Yvonne at 88, remembering a time <laughs> when, no, it was like, y'all, this just happened to me. And I'm still low key, like giddy and excited at the, you know, and, and grateful at the awe of God and what he's doing. Yeah. Let me tell you all about it. We get to see the the progression with you. It's like we're on the journey as well. So as you're going through it, you're writing this book and then you may come up with another one in five years and we can see that journey. And it's just a beautiful thing to see God working in real time. It's, it's great. That's exactly it. It's, it's real time. And so I, that's why I wrote the book. It was just like, yo, I know I, I know I needed something like this on my journey. Like you said, to have somebody like who has faith, but also has these dreams and it's very scary and there's fear involved and all these things. And so for me, it was just like, if I went through it and I was just like, man, I know somebody else is going through it. And then on top of that, a global pandemic. Oh, here y'all go. Because we all got bamboozled by something hey, last year. Hey, man, don't <laughs> it, even. <laughs> even if you don't call it Jesus, we got bamboozled by COVID, by so many things. No, we really did. It was a lot going on. But uh, we're on the way out of it now, which is great. Really, really great. I wanted to ask you about, so you said that you now live the life of your dreams, which is amazing. Congratulations, because... You know, some of us are still working at that, but we will get there. Um, what will. We will. What's the most show busy, memorable thing that happened to you that made you say, yeah, this is this is the life that I always wanted? Oh, man. I mean, I think just being able to do things like bring my whole family to Dubai, you know, for a vacation and just be like, yo, for my mom's birthday. It's like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, this is pretty, this is great. Like I, I made it, like I dreamt, like I, I couldn't send my mom Mother's Day cards because I was so poor. And now we were flying to Dubai, like what? Um, then like, you know, Kelly Rowland inviting me to her and Beyonce's Halloween party one year. And I'm like, am I, am I dancing next to Beyonce, Jay-Z? Like, what the heck? Wow. What is this world? What is this life? <laughs> you know, and it's just like, wow. Okay. And it's just like, you never even know who is receiving your art in any way. You know, and you're just like, wow. it, it extends so far going to the white house right before the obamas left and like meeting barack obama and him saying like oh i love the show you know and it's just like me and Issa were like he loves the show you know <laughs> and so it, it it is it is those moments where you pinch yourself like my god this is it like we're doing something that like affects culture and we're part of the culture like wow mm -hmm. okay crazy 
Yeah, no, you really are part of the culture. That's amazing, though. Just dancing next to Beyonce and Kelly. Child. One day, man. <laughs> one day. But we were talking about the show. So, yes, the show is what kind of propelled everything. It is, of course, Insecure. You play Molly. It's a really great role to play, really positive for young black women in particular. Um, there can never be enough roles like that, to be fair, because we haven't always seen that. And we know that for young black women, we need to see that on the screen. That representation is very important. Um, why do you think Molly resonated with so many people? And do you see any similarities between yourself and her? Yeah, you know, I think that so many people find themselves in Molly because, they're, one, there is a real-life Molly. And, you know, after a while, the writers kind of took their creative liberties with her. So not not everything my character has experienced has the real-life Molly experience. But it's based on a real human being. You know, anytime you stick close to reality, you get the humanity. You get the nuance. People can see themselves because it's like, if this person exists, surely somebody else similar to them with similar experiences also exists. And so the writers, I think I credit the writers because they pour their stories, they pour their lives into all of the characters. And so that's why you will see people saying, oh, I feel like Molly or, you know, I'm kind of like an Issa or, you know, I've been where Lawrence was or, you know, whatever. And so it's just like none of our none of our characters are caricatures they're real people and so it's like you love to love them or love to hate them because you recognize you know either favorable things favorable things about yourself in them or things that you loathe about yourself or people that you know in them and so that's why you have such a visceral real reaction to these characters mm. and when you see them going through things on the show as well you can then relate to that and say okay maybe i can handle that like that it's a it's a great it's been a great show to watch um everyone has insecurities how do you work through your insecurities how do you try to overcome them when they do crop up sometimes i lean into it you know i think you sometimes a lot of people feel like they have to overcome it's like hey listen i'm not great at this i can say i'm like i'm not great at this but we're going to figure it out, you know? And I think just being, giving yourself the honesty of just being like, hey, there is something that you're not good at. That's okay. You know, you're not going to be great at everything, but there are a lot of things that I am good at. So it's like, rather than focusing on like the thing I'm insecure about or not good at, I focus on like, okay, but I'm good at this other stuff. <laughs> I'm good at this other stuff. And um, I think too, is just reminding yourself in those moments of insecurity, just like, hey, listen, We've been here. You go through the same cycle anytime this comes up. It ain't taking you out, <laughs> girl. What is what is true and what is feelings of fear? And I think reminding yourself of the in that in those moments where you need to show up, right? I think it's the level of vulnerability you have with yourself and that you have with others. You set the tone. You know what I'm saying? So when you get up, like when I get on stage, before I get on stage, I'm always like, oh, get me. I don't want to do it. I'm <laughs> nervous. Will they laugh? Is this going to be funny? Like, what if I forget my jokes? What if one doesn't land? What do I? It's like, hey, every shot that Michael Jordan threw up did not go in. Enough did. And that's what most people remember. Yeah, <laughs> man, I love that. Enough did. And so it's just like, throw up enough shots that'll go in. And don't focus on the ones that didn't. The ones that didn't, they'll let you know like, okay, well, here's where I can strengthen myself or here's where I can give myself grace. And so I think when you when you handle yourself with care, like a fragile package, you realize it's not the end of the world. Hmm. It's okay. It's okay. I, by, the grace of, by the grace of God, I'll have an opportunity to do it again. And I'll Amen. do it better. 
Yeah, man, definitely. And, and I think, you know, everybody on their job has really freaking amazing days. And sometimes on their job, they have really freaking bad days. And that does that doesn't take away from the celebrities. It's like, hey, some days we're going to be great. And some days we're going to be like, mm, I could have been better. Mm. And I'll try it. Yeah, I think that's the great way to go about it. You know, could be better. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. You're still here and you can still keep going with it. Um, you mentioned being vulnerable as well. So you share a lot about your personal life, obviously in the book and online, which we really love because we love to just see what's going on in, you know, your world. Was that an intentional choice? Well, it's kind of the same, the same way I am in life is the same way I, I am in the book. It's like, you know, so many celebrities probably would shy away from being like, we don't want to talk about when we were poor. It's like, no, 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 I hate that. Because when you you meet people who made it, and you're like, so what did you do in those hard times? And they're like, well, you know, started from the bottom, you know, but we made it. And it's like, okay, no, I, I see you made it. What did you do in the process of making it when you weren't making it? And it's like, you, you're not really getting a real answer. And for me, I'm just like, Yo, I'm not ashamed of my story. I'm not ashamed. Like it's, it's like I'm not ashamed of the gangstar and the hard because they worked together to create the me that you see. So if you love me, the me that you are seeing and interacting with now, then you got to know where she came from. And so that, that, that my vulnerability has always kind of been there to just be like, yo, I'm not like. It is what it is. Like, this is who I am. Like, I, I used to be a people pleaser. And so for a long time, like, my vulnerability was like, only show them the good parts. Only show mm. them the good parts. Like, don't let them, don't let the bad stuff come out because then, like, they will judge you because I was bullied and I was judged for half of my life. And so it's like, well, you know, if we can just avoid that. And you grow up and you realize, like, no one's perfect. And so you're chasing this thing that doesn't exist because at some point you're going to do something wrong or you're you're not going to be in the best light and like that that still doesn't end your life mm. that still doesn't make you less than worthy and so uh my vulnerability in in sharing like my excitement or like oh my god I'm nervous it's like that just makes me real and you and human and that doesn't mean that like y'all are gonna get like a front row seat to every aspect of my life but it's just like you know in this season I, I'm I'm open mm. Yeah, I, I love that. I think, like you said, in this season, and you can switch that off whenever you want to switch that off, and it is what it is. Um, you've been vulnerable and open about your relationships as well, and there's been a conversation in the media for a while. How do you feel about that? Is that something that you you are going to continue to do moving forward and being open with it, or you just want to shut that off? I think it depends. I think it's like a case-by-case scenario. I think everybody makes a choice for themselves. You know, you, you have the you know, the Uzo Adubas who were married for a whole year and then they come out and it's like, well, that's awesome. Because, and I and I get that, because it's just like, you know, you want to keep something for you and enjoy it. Because once it's out in the world, it, it almost doesn't belong to you anymore. Um, and so you keep, you know, keeping something sacred and then sh- and then sharing it on your own terms. It's like amazing. Um, and then you have people who are like, every step of the way, I'm going to show you like, when we're dating, when we're engaged, when we're, ma-. and it's just like, it, I think it depends on the two people and what both people are comfortable with. You know, I have shared relationships in the past um, and they haven't worked out. I don't, I'm not like, uh, I'll never do that again. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, like I may, I may not. It just depends on where I am in that season. 
Mm. So one thing that you've been really vulnerable with is your celibacy journey and you've been really open about it. You've you've put it all out there. And I have a few things to ask, primarily for our our women listeners and our women readers who may uh, may find themselves in this predicament. So you meet somebody or even men, to be fair, this this happens to men as well. But you meet somebody, you, you share this part of your journey with them and you let them know that you are celibate. But then a few months down the line, they are like, oh, wait, they were really serious serious and they start to apply that pressure and they start to get a bit agitated because they didn't think you were actually that serious about it how do you navigate those types of situations and the celibacy journey in general when you are dating I'm the kind of person that like it is what it is and I don't add any extra sauce on it so I don't go into relationships thinking like oh my god this is like the most special thing about me and like you know, that like I'm just kind of like the same way people know I'm Nigerian. It's like, oh, well, they know that this is a thing. Um, and in my relationships, everyone doesn't know. And and I'm very open when I about when I bring it up too, because it's not the first thing I bring up. It's not like, oh, this dinner was great. By the way, you know, you're not going to get none tonight. Because I feel like that's kind of disrespectful, <laughs> especially like if the guy wasn't even thinking about it. It's like, what the hell? Like, I wasn't even thinking about that. Um, and so it's like, I can't make assumptions of like, I know this is what every man want. No, it's because there's some guys who are also on their journey who are like, yeah, I'm kind of fasting from sex right now. So this is actually great. Like I talked to, I've talked to guy friends who are like, man, I just, it's hard, but like, I can't, I haven't had sex in six months because I'm really trying to stay focused. And they're not necessarily saying that they're going to do that for the rest, you know, until they get married, but it's just like, that's the season they're in now. And so you'll be surprised how many guys or actually on their journey in their own way. And so, because I meet a lot of women who are kind of like, well, I mean, I, I know I, I want to wait, but like, I feel like, you know, the guy that I really like won't wait. And so then what do I, and it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we're not, we're not bargaining, chipping our hearts and our lives and our bodies for somebody just to like us. Because, you know, I tell people all the time, like both, whether you have sex or you don't have sex, it's a, it's a choice that you have to make that you are comfortable with because there are no guarantees either way. It's not like everybody who's had sex has ended up in like amazing relationships. I was like, if that was the guarantee, then God, bye. Hey. Like, I'm doing it. <laughs> and on, on the flip side, it's not like everybody who's waited has had amazing marriages, mm. right? So it's more than just the sex. It's For me, I'm just like, who are you as a person? Are you in therapy? Are you, you know, what's your character like? Like, I'm not just smashing you like I'm like yo I, I'm, I'm investing in all of you to see if like you're even a suitable partner mm. and so yeah if a guy wants to do the bait and sweet switch for me I'm just like yo fam you knew what it was from jump you knew what it was from jump so like you being angry or you being like uh it's not gonna change my mind <laughs> like this is not this is not up for negotiation and yeah it sucks sometimes because you're just like why did you even try it and mm. it's like why did you even like get my hopes up and just like what the heck like what what were you thinking yeah. and so but at the end of the day I just am like no 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 it wasn't the onus wasn't on me to give it up the onus is now on me to find somebody who's better than this person mm. and so and that person exists and I think that's where the faith and the belief comes in because if you're met with that either so often you're just like ah are there any good guys left? Should I just do it? Because and it's like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not it. Because again, anytime you betray yourself in what you said I would do, it's kind of like when you have a diet and you're like, I'm not going to eat 
I'm going to do this. And then it's like, you eat the cake and you're like, ugh, it felt good going down. But now I'm like, I'm mad because like, all I had to do was just not eat the cake. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just like, you don't, I don't, that, and that's just a food that you can like easily work off versus something that you felt spiritually in your heart was very important to you. And so for me, I'm just, I'm like, mm, I believe somebody is out there who's not tripping this. Like, again, I say, I, I look at this as, so not so minute but like minute in the grand scheme of what a relationship actually is right like it's like not only are we compatible sexually like are we compatible spiritually Mm. purposely like do you understand what i do and do you like how are we are we compatible financially are we there's so many versions of of compatibility yeah do you want to bring it back to the book um and the title of the book as well so when i first saw that i thought it was the most amazing thing because you included the word jesus and usually when we're writing christian books and when we see them or tv shows people aren't so bold to say jesus because jesus is very connected to christianity so people will say the universe or god or something that's a little bit more you know marketable what was the the was you always very set on that and did anyone try to steal you away from having jesus in the title absolutely (laughs) uh to both questions um i was i that was the title that was given to me that was the only title that i was like and it came to me and as a as a comedian i i laughed at the title i was like i get it and i'm i think it's funny and to your point, yeah, I was like, this is not, this is not the universe. <laughs> this is not, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I had, you know, different publishers say like, you know, what do you think about a title change? And I'm like, mm, no, the title is the title. Yeah, well, you know, so many people believe in God, but everybody doesn't believe in Jesus. It's so specific. And I was like, uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's the title. And I don't know if it hurt me or if it didn't. But it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I, it's my assignment. And, you know, it's interesting because I don't think I factored in that, like, I was so focused on the Jesus part. And I think people in the church were focused on the bamboozle part because they were upset because they were like, well, Jesus doesn't bamboozle people. I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> what? You know, or, or people like, God doesn't trick anybody. He's a loving God. And I was like, oh, okay. These are the people who are just so focused on, you know, religion and not really in relationship with God because one, I he has a sense of humor. He gave me the title. Two, it's like, yeah, you can call it anything else. You know, God God took me through a series of ups and downs. The bamboozlement. You can call it, you know, I, I had to go through the lily of the valley. Okay, so lily of the valley you understand, but bamboozled by Jesus. That one. And and you know if, for me, again, I, you know, I explained it. It's like, I this is how I rock with God. Like, we have a good thing going on. We have a sense of humor. And so, you know, I think the part of the reason why I wrote the book is like, yo, this I want people who have even been in church all their lives or who are new to church to have just almost like a, just almost take the, like, weight of religion off when you encounter the book and just really focus on relationship and really focus on, like, okay, well, this is what this looked like for her and this is how she clung to it. Okay, cool. Does that apply to me in my life? And how can I, like, wh- how does that make sense for me? Um, as opposed to like, well, I was always taught that. And it's like, okay, yes, a lot of people are taught a lot of things. Um, and some things are not even doctrine. <laughs> a lot of people, mm-hmm. some things are not even what Jesus said. Um, 
And so this was just more like, you can have fun with God. You can have fun and faith simultaneously. What piece of advice would you give to your younger self if you was to meet them today? You know, somebody just told me that this is something someone told them. And I loved it so much that I'm going to say it here. Um, They said if they could tell their younger self that 70% is okay. And, you know, the Nigerian in me is always like, I must give it 150%. You know, it's like, you know, like the details. And it's like, I rock hard. Like, I'm very specific. I go hard. And I don't think I gave myself a lot of grace or margin of error. It was just like, I have to, we have to be the best and it has to be great. No one is focused on all the details like you are. You know what I mean? Some, maybe a couple people would be like, oh, I noticed that you did this and that. And you're like, oh my God, yeah. And that makes you feel good. But the majority of people are just like, oh, that was cool. And you're like, wait, what? That was cool. I did all of that for it. That was cool. And so it's like, when I, in Hollywood, it's crazy because I'll literally be on set filming and they're still writing the script or rewriting the script. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. I thought we had to have a fully done script in order to shoot. That's why, that's when the 70% is okay. It takes the pressure off because you're just like, wait, 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 wait. Something can still be successful and actually still the ball can get rolling mm. and it's not even done? Oh my God. Okay, let me take the, let me take the pressure off of me. That's and that's not to say relax and coast and be average, but it is to say, give yourself grace. <laughs> Lovely. Love, 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 love that. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I wish we had more, but um, life is life. Um, <laughs> thank you to Brittany as well. Peterson, is that your uh, thank agent? Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you. Bye, Cassandra. Bye. Thank you. Have a great day. The book Bamboozled by Jesus, you can find it in all major places where you can get books. All the best places that sell books, you will find it there. Bamboozled by Jesus, How God Tricked Me to Live the Life of My Dreams by Yvonne Orji. Out now, everywhere that you can buy books. Hi, this is Sam from Premier Christianity. Would you like a free copy of the book that everyone is talking about right now? John Mark Comer's Live No Lies. I'm reading it myself and really enjoying it. You can get it when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. You'll get the UK's leading Christian magazine delivered through your letterbox each and every month. Plus this book. Take out the offer now at premierchristianity.com. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Profile, and I'm really pleased to be joined by Michael Ward, a C.S. Lewis scholar and author of the new book, After Humanity. It's a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And it's been a little while since I've caught up with you, Michael. So um, welcome along. Uh, so good to see you again, Michael. I mean, you, you, you like me, I'm sure have, you know, not been able to go very far afield. You're usually dotting all over the place between the US and the UK and so on. But I, I suspect things have been rather more home-based for the last 18 months or so. Yes, I have been rather confined, cabined, cribbed and confined as Shakespeare has it. And <laughs> I would have been to America at least three times by now, uh, but they've all been cancelled. It's very annoying. But... Thank goodness I haven't had the 
COVID and right. very few people I know have had it. So, And, um, and if you have to be confined to Oxford, it's not a bad place to be confined, <laughs> you know. Indeed. And I have a pleasant enough house, so I'm very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there's obviously so many Oxford connections with your life. Um, uh, tell us about how you became the person you are, one of probably the best known C.S. Lewis scholars in the world. Uh, I'm I hope I'm not embarrassing you saying that, Michael, but but tell us what, how, where did your love for C.S. Lewis come from originally? Uh, probably the same place that it comes for most people in that the Narnia books were read to me by my parents when I was a little boy and um, I loved them and read them for myself when I was old enough to do so. Um, except in my case, I, ne I never stopped reading or rereading Lewis. I, I moved from Narnia to his other fiction, to his apologetics, to his academic writings, then got interested in his life, his, his biography, his letters, his, you know, I, I did a, an English degree here at Oxford. And so I began to study him a bit more formally at that point. And when it came time for me to do my PhD, Lewis was the obvious choice. Uh, and so, yeah, without any real deliberation, I've ended up having my whole career sort of focused on Lewis and his writings. And mm. um, I'm pleased with how it's worked yeah. out. <laughs> There's a whole other shows I could direct people to from years gone by when we've talked through the, the, the great thesis of yours on, you know, un unveiling a sort of secret code of sorts behind the Narnia stories and the planetary schema that Lewis appears to have hidden within those books. But that's for people to go and discover for themselves. I'll try and leave a link with today's show where you can find out more about that and about your, your own book, Planet Narnia and so on. But um, you've continued writing and researching and and all sorts. Uh, I mean, your your latest book, which we'll come to in a moment, is, is based on the abolition of man, but it's published through um, Word on Fire. Um, tell us about Word on Fire and and your own connection with this, because this some way ties in with your own spiritual journey as well, doesn't it? Um, and, and where you've gone yourself theologically and in terms of the, your churchmanship, as it were. That's right. Yes. So uh, my book on the abolition of man is called After Humanity, and it's published by Word on Fire, Word on Fire Academic, to be precise. They, they've got this new academic line going. And um, <clears throat> yeah, Word on Fire is a Catholic ministry. And I, in addition to being an in addition to being an academic, I am a Catholic priest. And uh, I became a Catholic in 2012 after a lifetime's Anglicanism. And indeed, I was an Anglican priest for mm. several years. I was a chaplain first at Cambridge and then here at Oxford. And then I swam the Tiber and eventually ended up as a Catholic priest. And um, so, yeah, I, I, as it were, I ride two horses abreast. Um, I help out in a local parish, but I also um, am based here at one of the colleges at mm. Oxford where I do my, where I'm based for my academic work. But I also, as it happens, teach online for Houston Baptist University. Um, you cover all the bases, don't you? <laughs> Houston Baptists are very ecumenical. They're, they're happy to have Catholics on their faculty. Uh, so I teach for them online in their MA programme in apologetics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did, was Lewis ever tempted to swim the Tiber? I don't think so, no. Um, I mean, he was he was very Catholicly inclined as an Anglican mm. uh, that in certain respects. You know, he had a high view of the Eucharist, a high view of the priesthood. He went to confession. He believed in purgatory. Um, but he i think never had any serious inclination mm. to swim the tiber no mm. talking of lewis and his life um again before we come to your book michael 
Uh, I understand there's a film that's been recently. In fact, I think it was about a year ago. I seem to remember the filming was taking place for this in and around Oxford, um, a new film of Lewis's life and especially his conversion story. Um, tell us a bit about that and, and the role that you've played in it as well. The film is called The Most Reluctant Convert, and it's based on a one-man stage play starring Max McLean, which has had considerable success in the United States. Um, and it's now being made into a, into a, into a film uh, with, with more than just one cast member. Uh, in fact, there are three actors playing C.S. Lewis as, as a boy, a young man, and the old man. Um, and yeah, it focuses on his conversions, first of all, to theism and then to Christianity. It's all drawn very closely from Surprised by Joy, Lewis's autobiography. Um, and it's very close up to the facts. It's very faithful to the historical record um, mm. and very well cast as well. All, all three C.S. Lewis's are brilliantly cast. Um, the, the, the young man, Lewis, is played by Nicholas Ralph, who's, who's just shot to stardom as, as James Herriot in this new mm. version of All Creatures Great and Small. Um, and I was asked to play a small part as uh, C.S. Lewis's vicar, as as his parish priest here in Oxford, uh, the church he went to, Holy Trinity Headington Quarry, and we were able to film in the real church. And Lewis, Lewis's body is buried in the churchyard there. Mm, mm. Um, Don't they have an engraving in one of the windows um, dedicated to Lewis? They do, yes. Near the pew where he sat, there's a, a small etched window um, mm. with figures from Narnia engraved in it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it was filmed by, it was directed by... Um, Norman Stone? Norman Stone, mm. uh, um, who, of course, made the original BBC Shadowlands about CSS, mm. which won BAFTAs and, and... And and wasn't he involved in a production involving your own work as well? Yes, that's exactly how the invitation came about, because ah. Norman Stone made a documentary about my book, Planet Narnia, called The Narnia Code for the BBC. And um, when he knew he was making this new film that would be set in Oxford, he thought... Ah, Michael used to be an Anglican priest. He's now a Catholic <laughs> priest. He could probably pay, pray, play the part of a priest. And indeed, not only did I, I do that, I, I even brought my own vestments. <laughs> fantastic. There so, you, go. Uh, so was, you were props department as well. I was. Yeah, it was fantastic. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I understand that it's scheduled for November in the US release. Um, not exactly sure which platforms it will be appearing, hopefully in the UK as well, before too long as well. Um, but yes, I, I'm very excited about that. I do know Max a little bit as well. And, uh, and I, I know this, I'm, I'm sure will be a, a great, uh, really great to see what has been a, a fabulous stage play kind of transformed for the screen as well. So, yeah. um, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen it twice now in previews and, um, mm. it, was, it was shown to cast and crew first. And then there was a private screening here at Magdalen College, Oxford, where a lot of it was filmed. And uh, on both occasions, I liked it. I liked it more even the second time, um, which is a good sign. Yes. And yeah, I think I think it's definitely going to be worth seeing, M much more so than the recent Tolkien biopic, which I thought was terrible. Right. Yes. Uh, they, they yeah, varying quality, aren't they? When when it comes to exactly who who decides what what kind of spin to put on these different uh, biopics, but. Um, my one small C.S. Lewis uh, acting claim to fame is that I I was uh, the understudy to Douglas Gresham, uh, the playing the role of Douglas Gresham in Shadowlands when I was sort of ten or eleven, um, in a local repertory uh, theatre. So um, so I I well and I did play because we were both young the the, the two people playing the part I, I 
did about a third of the performances yeah, and right. uh, uh yeah and that stayed with me you know i think at the time i didn't i i wasn't i wasn't in a position to recognize exactly all the, the thematically what was going on in, mm. but but as an adult and reflecting back and I, I it has stayed with me you know that that whole experience of of, of playing that role uh yeah know. excellent what, Have what, you was in, it, uh, what i thought was actually a very good stage play i mean i in some yeah. ways i thought the stage play better than the um the actual film with with anthony hopkins you know yeah i agree i mean it went through several iterations first as a tv film then as a stage play then as the feature film and i agree with you that of the three probably the stage play was the best, um, not least actually because it's the longest. Mm. Um, it has had more yeah. time to, to have developed the theme. Yeah. Yeah. But have you ever met the real Douglas Gresham? Well, I have. I've also had the opportunity to interview him at least once. Um, this was going back several years when the Narnia films were being produced by Disney and so on. But uh, but yes, uh, so so that, that was a bit weird, meeting the, the man <laughs> in the flesh that you've played as a boy on stage. But there you go. Um, Anyway, let, let's talk about your your new project, um, After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. So um, to my shame, even though I count myself a fan of C.S. Lewis, I hadn't up until this year actually read The Abolition of Man. But it's not a long read. It's sort of an extended essay, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But do you want to sort of give, give a flavour of, of what it is, sort of where, where it falls within, you know, C.S. Lewis's canon, as it were, and um, what someone could expect if they read it for the first time? Yeah, I'm not wholly surprised that it's taken you so long to read it because it's it is a a relatively little-known work and a relatively difficult work. Um, it's Lewis in philosophical mode. It's based on three lectures in philosophy that he gave during the Second World War, and um, it's it's not an explicitly Christian apologetic. He's he's basing his argument purely on philosophy and reason and logic and history and um not it's it's it doesn't get as far as a belief in god let alone a belief in the christian god um all he's trying to do is defend um the objectivity of value Mm. that is to say that you know things have value in and of themselves regardless of of what you and i might prefer to think about them um you know there's aesthetic value that waterfall for instance is truly beautiful in and of itself um this statement is objectively true uh and you know certain moral actions are objectively good the good the true and the beautiful th- these values are objective they're, they're not just subjective projections from our own preferences and, and what was lewis specifically responding to in his own time because he sort of begins the whole book kind of you know <laughs> almost railing against a sort of particular textbook that he's come across um this seems to have been the, the thing that sparked his his yeah. thoughts um uh, so what was he seeing in his day and age uh, when it came to people claiming everything is subjective when it comes to values yeah i mean he starts off with uh, with directing his fire against this school textbook um which he, which he calls the green book uh, though it was in reality called the control of language um, but that's really just a springboard. That's a foil into his mm-hmm. argument. Um, what he's really tackling is not, you know, school textbooks, but the whole drift in Western thought over the last several centuries, really, towards an increasingly subjectivist approach to reality. Um, so it's a very large-scale argument that he's making, but you know, clever rhetorician, great stylist that he was, he starts with something small and particular, a school textbook that we can all recognize uh, as, you know, something that we've, we will have interacted with. 
um, and you know, gradually unfolds his argument from there. And I mean, it has become very widely recognized and admired as, as an attack upon subjectivism and as a defense of objectivity, um, partly because it's so very philosophical. It, because it's not an explicitly Christian or even theological work, it, it attracts a, a wide readership. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian or a theist to, to, to enjoy what he's doing there. Hmm. So how, how, how does this manifest itself today? Would you say, you know, that has only continued that trend that he was obviously noticing when, when he gave these lectures in the Second World War? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's described as a prophetic and a prescient work. Um, and rightly so, because I think what Lewis saw as, 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 as being underway in the 1940s has only really accelerated in the decades mm. since. Um, mm. So that, you know, a few years ago, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. We now live in a post-truth society. Um, and that, you know, that linguistic development show, shows you, I think, how things have changed since Lewis's day. Yeah. What What then are you trying to do? Obviously, people can read the book themselves. In fact, uh, I think the book, um, your your own book, your guide, is coming with a newly sort of printed, um, a newly minted version of the abolition of man. Um, what What? And your book, I think, is actually bigger, you know, than Lewis's book, you know, as a commentary on it. Um, so what What are you um, what are some of the key things that you're drawing out for today's reader for, of the abolition of man? Yes, my book is considerably longer than the, than Lewis's. Lewis's is about twenty thousand words, and my book is more like eighty thousand words. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I I think that's not because I'm just you know flogging a dead horse or labouring <laughs> a point. It's because there is so much packed into Lewis's mm. work, pound for pound, word for word. It's one of his densest pieces of of argumentation. So mm. it does take a lot of unpacking and. You know, there are a lot of just sort of allusions and things taken for granted in Lewis's work, which the average reader won't know about. And, you know, I didn't know about until I did my research. Um, I learned a lot in putting this book together. And because I'm not a philosopher myself, um, I don't take I don't, I don't take anything for granted about what readers of Lewis will find difficult because mm. I find it difficult myself. And I've noticed that my own students also, though they recognize that this is an important and, uh, and significant work, they they can't often get their teeth into it. Um, so, yeah, I've provided this guide. And if anyone wishes to buy After Humanity that from the publisher, Word on Fire, then they automatically get this tie-in edition of The Abolition of Man with a complimentary cover so that they're matching books. And um, what I try to bring out... Um, was that your next question? Yeah. What, what What are some of the key the key lessons for you that that the abolition of man has? Um, I, I've seen it being quoted quite frequently, actually, in the last eighteen months. Um, uh, you know, in, from various apologists and thinkers. Um, so, so, and, and Lewis has always been that master, hasn't he, of of that, that encapsulating an idea in a way that it does fit into an Instagram post or a Facebook post or whatever. Um, but what, what what would you say were some of the, the kind of takeaways for you as you researched the book that you thought, yes, this this is like Lewis speaking to our condition right now? Mm. Well, I think the principal takeaway is that uh, if value is indeed subjective, if we do indeed just project value onto the world, um, from our own preferences, our own whims, our own opinions, our own willpower, um, then there's really 
no such thing anymore as uh, rational debate, because to debate with someone about reality requires both you and the person you're talking with to recognize that there's something outside each of you, which between you, hopefully you can come to a better understanding of. Mm. But there, there can be no better or worse understanding of reality if reality is entirely projected from inside each one of us. Um, what are we talking about? It's, it's, it's basically a kind of solipsism that results from, from a thoroughgoing subjectivist approach to reality. So that itself is a really dangerous philosophical thing to embrace because it, mm. it leads to it leads to conflict it leads to war it leads to you know sheer willpower if i can't persuade you rationally and you can't persuade me rationally then all we can do is lock horns and the stronger one of us will dominate the weaker mm. through sheer force majeure and that's that's not the way to freedom and peace i, I mean where i see this potentially playing out in some way in, in a modern culture is um you have the the kind of the secular side who are all for science and that is our guide and and that is objective reality and, and we need to measure everything by that objective reality that's that's their kind of and then you often find them locking horns with other secular folk who who are you might argue more subjectivist in their approach and say no we we impose all our own values you know on, on everything and we're all a product of our situation and culture and and you know you see this role rolling through especially in the areas of gender identity and sexuality and so on at the moment where you can you know i i'm allowed to label myself you know a woman if i feel that i am a woman inside and, and i don't care what the biology or the science says about that you mm. know that's a that's an internal um feeling or, or whatever um do you do you, i mean is it i mean perhaps lewis didn't anticipate these specific debates that we're now seeing play out you know in in culture today but but Presumably, you think they're they're quite relevant to to his thought. Absolutely, they are the outworkings of of those things that he was putting his finger on back in the nineteen forties. And although I think he would have been amazed at the the speed with which these gender questions have arisen, I I don't think he would have been surprised by the fact that they have arisen, um, because one of his chief considerations, I think, as a as a philosopher, was questions of gender. You know, the Ransom Trilogy, his trilogy of interplanetary adventures, sometimes called the Space Trilogy, um, is all about gender. That's the main theme. Um, and he had a very strong view about the necessity to recognize the, the reality of masculinity and femininity. And if we did not, he said, we will soon find out that not that we are playing with them, but that they are playing with us. You know, these are mystical, archetypal realities, transcendental, metaphysical realities, gen gender identities, mm. that is, and we should not mess about with them. Uh, and to, to, to that extent, um, as, as, as society has moved in some respects in that subjective direction, we are seeing this, the, these, these now, you know, heated debates taking place uh, about this whole thing. I, I mean, would, would Lewis be any more a fan of the, you know the secularist who's all about the science as well though you know that that we we have a you know science is our only guide to objective reality presumably he wasn't exactly a great fan of that either no not because he was against science but because he was against the um the over 
valuation of a, of a particular scientific paradigm. Mm. You know, science is only as good as as the 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 means of study that it brings to its field of inquiry, and th those modes of inquiry need to be kept under constant review. And yes, although I mean, although we're trying to gain understanding of objective reality. It's still the case that we understand reality as subjects. You know, you, you and I are necessarily uh, confined to a particular perspective, and we need to recognize that humbly and, mm. and therefore adopt a due provisionality about any conclusion that we come to. And, and I think that it's that um, provisionality and humility that Lewis thinks that some scientists or science scientists mm. you know, the followers of scientism um do not keep fully and duly in mind um they they, they begin to you know as it were rest on their laurels oh this has worked for us in the past mm. let's just keep continuing to apply this paradigm yeah. ad infinitum but of course science progresses by by revolutions you know the, the, the structure of scientific revolutions that great book by thomas kuhn um, speaks very much, I think, to Lewis's attitude to science. And the title itself, The Abolition of Man, um, talk about that, because ultimately Lewis is saying there is a givenness to who we are, uh, to the value we embody. And and obviously, although he doesn't necessarily put it in quite these explicit terms, you, you can find that terminating in the fact that God has created and given us our, our value and so on. What What... What what was he say, foreseeing would be this so-called abolition of that idea, this abolition of man, and and where do we see it? I suppose reflected in in our modern culture. Yes, he calls his book the abolition of man because he thinks that recognition of objective value is is the is the definitively human faculty. Um, we are. And we are rational animals. We are unique in the universe. Um, angels have rationality, but angels don't have bodies. Animals have bodies, but they don't have rationality. Um, and so we are this composite creature um, with a rational head and a sensual belly. But between the head and the belly, we have this definitively human faculty, which he calls the chest, which is mm. the liaison officer between reason and passion. And it's that chest which links the angel and the animal and gives us the anthropological. And so that's his argument. If we if we fail to integrate our reasons and our passions, then we either evaporate upwards into false spirituality or descend downwards into bestiality. And either way, our manhood, our humanity is abolished. And and in the process, I think his his great concern was that we if we become so flexible, so moldable, the, the concept of who we are as humans, uh, it effectively we hand over power to whoever is the leading power broker. You know, it, we will be molded by by others. There is no if there is no objective standard. It, it will be whatever mm. culture, society science whatever decides we want to be I, I think i even seem to remember he sort of you know developed this whole thing in his science fiction trilogy especially in the last book um that hideous strength where he talks about the the, the potential pitfalls of of science to decide the future of humanity and what we are going to be in su such like 
Absolutely. Yeah, that hideous strength, he says explicitly, has behind it a serious point that I have tried to make in my abolition of man. It, it is the kind of fictional counterpart to the philosophical argument that he gives in abolition. And yes, if, um, if we go down this path, um, it all becomes a question of power. Who has power to, to mould everybody else? And it's not that they are, you know, the, the, the conditioners, the innovators are, are, are a particularly superior kind of human being. Um, if they have stepped out of the objectivity of value, then they, then they are no more human than the rest of us. So it's not that we, we underlings are being conditioned by other men. They themselves are being conditioned by their irrational impulses. And so either way, the abolition of man is brought about mm. either directly or indirectly. And, and again, Lewis, to, to some degree, predicting what we are now seeing, I think, in, in things like the transhumanist sort of movement and that sort of thing where, you know, there are people who are saying, yeah, we, we need to sort of uh, transcend the shackles of our physical nature. We can do what we like to our bodies. We can, you know, uh, live forever in some, you know, digital universe or whatever. There's there's a sense in which, um, yeah, and, and the question is, what is the results of taking off those those limitations in, mm. in, in that kind of way? Would I mean, would do you think Lewis would have recognised you know, what he wrote about, you know, in the 40s and 50s as, as, as having a sort of concrete realisation today. Absolutely, yes. Uh, he, he uses the word post-human at one point in the book. Um, I think not transhuman. Uh, that development hadn't yet sort of raised its head on the horizon. Mm. But, um, yeah, I think he saw where all this was possibly leading. And it's interesting that you mentioned the, the idea about, you know, living forever in a digital reality. Um, because at, at the at the root of all this, as I've been implying, is a desire for power um, to to recognize the objectivity of value is to recognize that that there's something outside our wills that we need to conform ourselves to. We have to, as it were, surrender to reality, not impose ourselves upon reality. And you know the the absolutely crucial question in this regard is, of course, our own mortality, that we have to recognize that we are mortal, we are going to die, we may not want to, but <laughs> so what, it's going to happen to us anyway, it's an objective reality. <laughs> um, and so it's interesting that in the abolition of man, Lewis repeatedly circles back to the question of, of death for a good cause. Uh, dying for one's country, he says, is the is the crucial test of the objectivity of value. Because because when you have to suffer for doing the right thing, um, it's it it's revealed to you that what you believe is indeed subjective. If it was a, if it were merely subjective, then you would change it, wouldn't you? Mm. So that you didn't have to suffer or mm. die. But when you do suffer and die for for a good cause for for the right, um, that indicates that what you're talking about is is genuinely objective and and that's why he completely re repeatedly comes back to this latin tag dolce et decorum est pro patria mori it's sweet and seemly to die for one's country and sometimes he he sneaks in uh, jesus's words about greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends mm -hmm. that's the crucial test of the objectivity of value um 
And indeed, one of the things I try to bring out in my book is that Lewis himself had seen this up close and personal in the First World War. He'd been a soldier in the Great War and very nearly killed. Many of his close friends and comrades were killed. Um, so he'd sort of tested this principle on his own pulse. He, mm. he had seen men die for their country and it hadn't shaken his belief in the objectivity of value. So much more we could talk about regarding the the guide you've written to the abolition of men michael but thank you very much for this this brief foray into it um again uh it's it's sort of a, a double sort of whammy if you get both of the books uh by ordering from uh, word on fire isn't it just explain again what people will get if they if they follow the links Yes, wordonfire.org slash humanity is the website to go to. And there you will get not only my guide after humanity, but this free complimentary tie-in edition of Lewis's book with a matching cover. Uh, so make sure to order through Word on Fire. Don't go to Amazon, because I think through Amazon, you're not so sure of getting the tie-in edition. Okay. Well, always good to support from the source anyway. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for the time. Uh, it's uh, it was I, I was delighted to be introduced to uh, a, a new Lewis work that will now sit on my shelf. And uh, and as you say, it's extraordinary how prescient the issues mm. remain today. Uh, and as you bring out in your own um, in, in your own guide to it. But thank you very much for being with me on the show today, Michael. My pleasure, Justin. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to The Profile today. That was Justin Briley in conversation with Michael Ward. And before that, you heard Cassandra Nelson speaking to Yvonne Orji as well. If you did enjoy those interviews, you are sure to love Premier Christianity magazine. It's the UK's leading Christian magazine. And if you subscribe right now, which means you get your full online access to all the brand new articles we're publishing every day, and you get the lovely print magazine delivered to your door every month. If you subscribe right now, we will even throw in a free copy of John Mark Comer's brand new book, Live No Lies. It's number one in the Christian book chart right now. It's the book everyone's talking about. I'm reading it myself and loving it. So why not take advantage of that really special offer? A free copy of John Mark Comer's new book when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. Just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. That's all we got time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Profile and we will see you same time, same place next week. Take care.